0: group that would analyze poetry, but in one of uh, their discussions, they were talking about what, would, what might you do in the last hour of your life. This is what Lovecraft wrote. For my part, as a realist beyond the age of theatricalism and naive beliefs, I feel quite certain that my own known last hour would be spent quite prosaically in writing instructions for the disposition of certain books, manuscripts, heirlooms, and other possessions. Such a task would, in view of the mental stress, take at least an hour and it would be the most useful thing I could do before dropping off into oblivion. If I did finish ahead of time, I'd probably spend the residual minutes getting a last look at something closely associated with my earliest memories. A picture, a library table, an 1895 farmer's almanac, a small music box I used to play with at two and a half, or some kindred symbol, completing a psychological circle in a spirit half of humor and half of whimsical sentimentality. Then, nothingness, as before August 20th,
1: 1890. A very poignant quote from H.P. Lovecraft, and you are listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast.
0: Here at hppodcraft.com. I'm Chris Lackey. And I'm Chad Fife. And this
1: is kind of our wrap-up episode, where we're going to just sort of talk about Lovecraft after his prose, after his stories.
0: Yeah, I, I still can't believe that we managed to get through all of the stories.
1: Yeah, it's pretty pretty crazy. I feel like there's more just because we've been doing this for so long, and it's become such a part of my life that now that there isn't any more stories i i feel a little lost
0: yeah well i feel as if maybe if we went on and we did other stories with other authors at some point Mm -hmm. you know maybe be able to fill that hole but we can talk about that later in fact next week (laughs) we're gonna do a little wrap up for the show as a whole about what it's meant to us and and what we've learned over the time covering all this fiction, and then we'll introduce what we plan to do with the show next. Exactly. But we don't need to talk about that right now. What music are we listening to, by the way? Oh, uh, I, I managed to get some music from a band called The Human Aftertaste. You'll remember that when we did the uh, Pikmin's Model show, mm-hmm. we had Josh Bentley on as a guest, yep. and he mentioned that he made a movie called Pikmin's Song. That's up on YouTube now. We'll link out to it. But the soundtrack for it's got that kind of good creepy ambient stuff. They shot me over a copy, so I'm going to be playing that under the show today. It's that kind of good stuff you can play when you're gaming or painting or having mm-hmm. those cult rituals, you know. just good spooky music the soundtrack is available so i'll put up a link so that you can pick that up it's good stuff to check out it's cheap i think it's only five bucks so the only other note that i wanted to make real quick about a past episode Mm -hmm. was uh when we were talking about the guy in miami the face eating attack right i had said erroneously that he was on bath salts because that's what the media was just reporting yeah and actually somebody wrote in to tell me stop saying that because nobody substantiated it he was absolutely right the journalists are now saying, no, he wasn't on anything. The only thing in his system was marijuana. Wow. He just had the munchies, I guess. By the way, we're, we're leaning pretty heavily on S.T. Joshi's biography of Lovecraft called H.P. Lovecraft, A Life.
1: Uh, it's an outstanding biography. In fact, it's not even the the full biography that Joshi's done. He did an, an unedited version, which is in two volumes, called I Am Providence. Right. It's, it's a really great read, and if you're into Lovecraft as we are it goes into a lot of detail and it really paints a picture of Lovecraft as a guy
0: and there are some other biographies as well I looked at some of them you have that signed uh, copy of Sprague de Camp L. Sprague de Camp wrote a biography in the 70s called Lovecraft a Biography yep (laughs) that one is not so good
1: one I just couldn't get through it and it seems like he doesn't really like lovecraft that much i mean you would you think you'd have to like somebody to write a biography about them i don't know joshi really rips on DeCamp camp in in a life talking about how he just wasn't equipped to deal with writing a biography about lovecraft and tackling all of all of the letters that are out there and there's so much research that needs to be done because there is just piles and piles of of facts about him in, in going through all that stuff and he just kind of half-assed the whole thing and the <laughs> yeah. really shows, yeah.
0: And, you know, even uh, this show is certainly no giant work of scholasticism, but I feel oh, like no. we're we're, uh, <laughs> we're we're rough on Lovecraft sometimes, or rather we're rough on the writing. I don't think we've ever been rough on him. No. Yet, when you look at the way that DeCamp writes about Lovecraft near the end, because I flipped through the back of it here to see mm-hmm. you know what he had to say about the end of his life. He just kind of craps on him, you know? <laughs> he just really doesn't seem to like the way that he writes. And, in fact, I think he even kind of calls him a loser at some point. Wow. But, which is strange to me for biographical subjects yeah now, there's there's another book that was written around that time in the, in 75 that's called Lovecraft at last right that is by Willis Conover yeah who was a correspondent who was just friendly with Lovecraft in his last couple of years and and Lovecraft had a lot of correspondence in the last couple of years we, we're going to talk about that in a bit mm-hmm. Willis had you know a really close relationship with him just in that short amount of time there was another quick letter I wanted to read mm-hmm. before we dive off totally into the discussion, because I think this this kind of gives you an, an impression of how Lovecraft felt about his own legacy, or how he was when he was younger. Maybe gives you some insight into how he changed near the end of his life. Conover had gotten a letter, it was this autobiographical letter that Lovecraft had written to Edwin Baird in 1924. It's very long and talks about his life and his philosophies. Conover had gotten it and wished to publish it in small press. <laughs> and Lovecraft did not want that to happen. He wrote a letter to Conover that said, well... About that damn letter, I gape with mortification at its egotistical smugness, florid purple passages, ostentatious exhibitionism, ponderous jauntiness, and general callousness. It wouldn't be so bad if I had written it at 23, but at 33, what a complacent, self-assured, egocentric jackass I was in those days. Well, the excuse, if any, is this, that the invalidism and seclusion of my earlier years had left me at 33 as naive and inexperienced and unused to dealings with the world as most are at 17 or 18. As you see by the letter, I had only just burst out of the shell of retirement and was finding the external world as novel and fascinating as a kid finds it. I was drunk with a sense of expansion, as it were, fascinated by new scenes and allured by the -the will-o'-the-wisp of literary success. He had had his first uh, Weird Tales placement Mm -hmm. the year before. So that my whole psychology was that of a belated adolescence with the usual egotism, pompous writing, jauntiness, and show-off tendencies of the callow. It is hard for me to recapture the mood of that far-off age, but very obviously I thought I was quite a guy. (laughs) Well, the one consolation is that I'm not quite as effervescently sappy a dub in 37 as I was in 24. I may be bad enough now, but at least the years have been able to focus my sense of proportion a bit, so that I would scarcely be capable of quite such an orgy of blah as this nauseous spouting which the past has yielded up. (laughs) (laughs) But it does show you that he had changed, and he had a kind of different point of view on the world and a different point of view about what he used to think of the world. Yeah. Who knows how his worldviews would have changed as he'd gotten older if he hadn't died. It's
1: really interesting because at this point he has the perspective of being an older man talking to a younger writer. And Conover at the time was 15 years old when he was writing Lovecraft. Right. And they never met in person. It was always just... uh, across the, with these letters and things. Lovecraft was insane with his correspondence at this point in his life, as he, you know, in the last year. Um, I've got a quote here from, from him. As for the containment of my correspondence, this will not mean any abrupt policy of arrogant or neglectful silence. It will mean rather a cutting down of the length and promptness of such letters as do not absolutely demand space and speed. I immensely enjoy the new points of view, varied ideas, and diverse reactions offered by a wide correspondence, and would be infinitely reluctant to have any drastic or large-scale elimination." But then he goes on to say, (laughs) I find my list has grown to 97 now, which surely calls for some pruning, but how the hell can one cut out the applicatory obligations without becoming snobbish or uncivil?
0: 97.
1: 90s he was writing 97 people regularly
0: he wrote that letter to conover in late 1936 right yeah
1: Mm -hmm. in september now but this goes to show just kind of lovecraft's character like he was a real i hate to say gentleman that seems so corny but he he was like he felt that writing these people was important to respond and if somebody gives you a letter you write a letter back but also that this was the way that he connected with people He wasn't, he didn't have any friends really in Providence or none that he really talks about that much. It was, everybody was far away and all over the country. And this is how he connected. This is how he had these intense relationships with people is through these letters. And we were talking a few weeks ago about Lovecraft and what he would have thought of the internet. And I have to say that he would have thought it was amazing and he would have been really, really into it.
0: Yeah, well, just think of how he could have economized corresponding with those 97 people. He just had a Twitter account or something like that. But the, but the uh, um, now he's writing that letter because he's finding that he just doesn't have as much time. No. That's the sad thing because he's running out of time because his aunt is ill. Annie. And things are just generally not going too well in 1936 for him. Now, the last years of his life weren't awful. Uh, in 1935 he had traveled a lot he was down to florida to see barlow for quite a long time we talked right. about that before. we did talk about that he stayed with him for a while helped him build a cabin which was something i read in the joshi thing which was cracking me up he was like out clearing brush and things like that just not lovecrafty kind of things you think about you know <laughs> out in the florida sun doing that kind of thing um, he saw lots of friends in new york as he was traveling he was taking uh-huh. those you know bus trips where he'd stay in the bus overnight so he didn't yep. have to get a hotel room uh, and he was generally pleased because he recently sold both Shadow Out of Time and the Mountains of Madness, of course, when he finally saw these things in print. It was a crushing blow to him because yeah. they were just completely mangled. But Barlow was very much so in Lovecraft's life. He had published a printed pamphlet version of The Cats of Ulthar as a mm-hmm. surprise in Christmas of 35. There was also his account of visiting Charleston, which was his basically his second favorite city after Providence. Yeah. It had been published in a pamphlet by H.C. Koenig. Mm-hmm. But things really started going kind of downhill big time in 36 lovecraft had not been feeling very well for a while and he would he had said that he had
1: the grip that's what he called it it was just like a kind of an antiquated term for the flu
0: he said that in his letters in march that annie had a much worse case of the grip and was in the hospital Mm -hmm. but that was just him being genteel i mean it just would have been she had breast cancer
1: yeah and she had a mastectomy
0: and had a mastectomy and that's not something that he would have probably been communicating to many people
1: no Of course. And it was one, it's none of their business to what what happened. And and at the time there wasn't breast cancer wasn't talked about as, as it is now in the open and there's not people running races for it and and doing the things that now thank God that they do. And then there's a a huge awareness about it. That type of thing was definitely put under the rug back in the thirties.
0: Right. Well, she was sick and in the hospital a lot and their finances were already bad. Uh, and in 36 Lovecraft was very busy taking care of her that of course had some impact on his lifestyle he couldn't write as much as he wanted to and and I think the just the disappointments of seeing at the mountains of madness published in astounding stories that spring it was all butchered which we've covered yeah. before uh, one thing I didn't know though is he actually he had copies of the magazine and he um he altered the copies by hand <laughs> before he allowed friends to read it because he wanted his friends to see it in print but yeah. he didn't want him to see the bad stories, so he was crossing things out and writing things into the margins and he yeah. redoing it for them. And also he was getting criticized for these stories, uh, people writing in and just saying some pretty nasty things about it. That him, was that the I stuff
1: can... that was really yeah, hurting him. I mean, Mad- at The Mountains of Madness was received better than Shadow Out of Time. Shadow Out of Time really got slogged, yeah. and it really put him off of writing, or at least writing prose. And he does talk about he wanted – he thinks maybe poetry was more of his calling, and that's the kind of thing that he should – Focus on more. Yeah,
0: he says a lot that he uh, he thinks he's just done done with fiction, which I think might be a little.
1: He's done that in the past before yeah. too. Yeah, uh, he's just said, "Oh, and I'm th- I'm through with it. I'm done. I'm not gonna." Yeah,
0: it's like how Robert Smith and The Cure retire every, every other year. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, it's not quite like that, but but I do know there was a um, <laughs> <laughs> Ernest uh, A. Edkins wrote that he was uh, co- corresponding with Lovecraft about doing a. Uh, some kind of novel like some great dynastic epic about a new england family cursed with some variant of lycanthropy yes so there was some ideas Go, boy i'd love to read that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it was around near the end of 36 when he was getting solicited about that but of course things fell apart it seemed like a lot of people even barlow and conover were saying hey let's get your stuff in a print we're gonna get something going small press right. and things would just not work out
1: well actually some of his stuff was Going overseas as well. It started Lovecraft's work started because Julius Schwartz was still kind of representing him. And he was the guy that got at the Mountains of Madness and uh, Shadow of Time. And he was starting to send it over to England. And that's even in Lovecraft while he was still alive in his lifetime. The people in England started catching the Lovecraft wave.
0: One thing that we touched on briefly in the last episode was Robert E. Howard's death. Yeah. And that was in June of 36. Robert E. Howard's mother fell into a coma. Doctor said she wasn't coming back. He got into his car and shot himself in the head. Yeah. And Lovecraft didn't find out for more than a week. But when he did, I mean, he was just crushed by this. Yeah. He didn't understand it. Now, the two had never met, but they'd been corresponding for six years, and they were very close.
1: A lot of correspondence. There's, In fact, I know there's a volume of their correspondence.
0: Also that year, like later in the year, I think he had different visitors that did come by Providence, right?
1: Yeah, Barlow actually came to visit him and stayed for a while in Providence. And he sort of uh, makes fun of, he says in a letter, I'm going to paraphrase this, So, that, but that Barlow's sort of a, a pain in the butt. To have to kind of make sure he's entertained the whole time, he's not entertaining himself, or he can't go out and do things on his own. But yeah. he he says it a little tongue in cheek that because, but he really does en- en- enjoy the time that he's having with him.
0: But I did read a thing where they he uh, de Castro came by around that time. De Castro was an old man,
1: and he'd fallen on hard times. Like he sort of lost all of his money and was was tr- trying to. Get something going again with Lovecraft. Like, hey, remember when we sold that story? I can. <laughs> I got an idea about a, a dwarf with a with a mustache that kills people. You know, maybe we could do work that out.
0: Well, I just thought that was a great wrecking crew. Barlow, who's like you know nineteen or however old he was, he's still a teenager. You've got Lovecraft in his forties, and then De Castro is this old man, and they were going banging around town. I think they went up to the cemetery in St. John's. And didn't they write sonnets out there in the cemetery?
1: There was a few other guys that Lovecraft was corresponding to at this time. I mean actually yeah, there was seven. Right,
0: right. But he had a lot of there were a lot of young writers and yes. he was they were getting help from him on their fiction.
1: Exactly. Uh, Henry Kuttner was, was one of them and right. a little interesting fun fact about that guy is that uh, he had some pictures that lovecraft gave him of providence and or was it boston might have been salem i'm not sure it was salem that's what it was
0: to help with the accuracy of his fiction right
1: right he goes oh would you mind giving those to c l moore and they got married <laughs>
0: i think they <laughs> on the spot it took a little bit of time <laughs> well no no i think he might have even said mail these on i don't know if they met in person. like mail these on to c l moore who's a woman Yes. And she was in Challenge from Beyond. She was one of the writers in Challenge from Beyond. There
1: was a love connection that got made. A love craft. connection
0: got made, right. Henry Kuttner and C.L. Moore became acquainted, but they weren't married until 1940. No. They wrote together from for the next 18 years or so. They wrote a bunch. A bunch of stuff in kind of that golden age of science fiction from the, from the 40s through the 50s, which blew me away. I was reading this and I realized I actually had one of their books when I was a kid, Judgment Night. Oh. My uncle had given me. I never read it, but I remember it sitting there on the, on the shelf, so oh. it was kind of cool. But, hey, we made jokes in the very first episode about, you know, Lovecraft and how he was, you know, the craft of love. And, like, look, it's true.
1: Well, another one of his correspondents was uh, Fritz Lieber Jr. Now, Uh I don't know if you – you've never read any of the Grey Mouser stuff, did you?
0: Not me, no, but I've heard that that's – a lot of people like it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Recently there was – well, not recently. Gosh, now it's probably about 10 years that he – there's a whole collection of the Grey Mouser stories that um, Mike Magnolia, who did Hellboy, he did the Mm – the cover art for that and maybe some interior art as well i don't remember but he was a, a big writer and at that point he was still a, he was an up-and-comer he was born in 1910 so in 37 he was you know his early 20s but lovecraft was writing to that guy too and getting him going on his writing career so it's it's pretty amazing
0: yeah fritz uh, said around that time or he wrote uh, lovecraft is sometimes thought of as having been a lonely man he made my life far less lonely Not only during the brief half year of our correspondence, but during the 20 years after. And that was a really nice thing to say.
1: You were saying, Chad, that this was a hard time for Lovecraft financially. And because of it, he was trying to save money where he could. And he did so on his diet. Yeah. It is probably... A huge contributor to his death was, was his diet and the, the, the terrible food he I mean, he talks about in some of his letters how he found cans of food that was three years old that he was eating.
0: Well, there was something Joshi was saying in the biography about how they didn't have the same preservatives in their canned goods at the time. The fact that those preservatives weren't there actually could have contributed to the carcinoma.
1: And that's what eventually got Lovecraft. It was a carcinoma of the small intestines. And a contributory cause was also a chronic Nephritis, which is a type of kidney disease.
0: Yeah, yeah, renal failure. In March of 36, even, which is while well, his aunt was sick, mm-hmm. he says some 20-minute eggs plus half a can of baked beans make a sumptuous repast. <laughs> he's eating old cans. Like you said, he's just eating those old cans of food they have around. And, right. and dinner, he... Re- he was chronicling his dinner. Dinner on March 30 was cold hot dogs, biscuits, and mayonnaise.
1: Yeah, the one of the there's a, a letter to uh, to Lieber where he was saying he kind of broke down exactly how he can eat for 30 cents a day. I mean, he broke it down to the
0: like fraction of cents. Fraction
1: of cents, yeah, because he would be able to buy it and then eat for. So he would have like in the morning he would have donut and some cheese and some condensed milk and coffee. That was his breakfast, and then dinner. Like so, we did was 10 cents. Yeah, that was 10 cents, and then for dinner he would have a can of Rats chili con Carne, Two slices of bond bread and a coffee and a slice or quadrant or octant of pie
0: and that was two twenty cents so his average total per week was two dollars and ten cents for food he's not starving but he's just eating poorly
1: really poorly well I mean he' that's not much food man oh no no, no
0: certainly not certainly no. not but but see this is the thing and this is why Joshi's work here is so important because the myths about lovecraft kind of there I mean there were a lot of them yeah until recent history until the last maybe Few decades when people have really taken an active interest in his work. I mean, people said that he starved to death, and that's how he died. And I think yeah. that that's a myth. It was just that his bad diet contributed to his his cancer.
1: He really was getting sick in that winter, the winter of uh thirty six and thirty seven, and that's yeah. really, really where it was hit because the cold affected him always. It was just an extra bad winter for him, I and mean, he, he knew something was wrong. I mean,
0: well, he even in some of his letters was referring to this part as the end of his life. You know, one could guess that he had some sense that things were really wrong. And, and obviously, the reason that he died so quickly was because he, he put off seeing physicians for so long. Yeah. And as some people would speculate, that's because he had such a bad experience with his parents when he was a right. child.
1: They were both institutionalized.
0: But nobody can really say why. It could have just been financial concerns. He was
1: in a lot of pain in his last days. Annie, his aunt, wrote a letter to Barlow back in March 12th. Now, March, uh, Lovecraft dies on the Ides of March in 1937. Yeah. Um, and this is what her letter said. I have intended to write you a gay little letter long long since, but I'm writing a sad little letter telling you that Howard is so pitifully ill and weak. The dear fellow grows weaker and weaker. Nothing can be retained in his stomach. Needless to say, he has been pathetically patient and philosophical through it all. It took a while for that letter to get to to Barlow, and Barlow quickly wrote and, and sent a telegram and said, would like to come and help you if you're agreeable, answer Leavenworth tonight because that's where he was living in Kansas at the time. Mm-hmm. And he got a telegram back. It said, Howard died this morning, nothing to do. Thanks. So
0: sad. It's um, something that people don't really have to deal with anymore is the fact that if you wanted to communicate quickly, you had to telegraph and couldn't really say that much. Just the brevity of that message is it's kind of devastating, you know? Yeah.
1: Nothing, nothing to do nothing to do thanks
0: now one thing that i find interesting is that he was still in his journal when he was really sick and, and really bad he was chronicling it i mean he was writing in his diary yeah what was happening to them in fact there's a uh, the diary entry from march 2nd is pain drowse intense pain rest great pain which is awful but it did make me think about connor the dark and some of these other stories you know, people are writing in their journal up to the very end, <laughs> and right. some people complain <laughs> about that. It's not quite giant black paws or reaching out of the abyss or anything absurd no. like that. But um, no, But hey, you know, it's the habit of a guy to do this, and he does it right up to the end. He does. But in that last month, he kept a diary of his experience, and it's all been lost, more or less. Uh, although Barlow did copy out some portions in a letter to August Durlat. So some of it, that's how we have clips of some of it. Now that relationship between Barlow and August Erleth, not necessarily the relationship, but their relationship to Lovecraft becomes very important in the time after he passed away.
1: Right. Lovecraft had written instructions in case of of decease, and he, they were given to Annie. and They were specifically she was told to give it to Barlow, and Barlow would be the executor. He would deal with everything. Now this wasn't a legal document. This wasn't official. Done with lawyers or any of that stuff it was just lovecraft wrote it put it in an envelope gave it to and he says give this to barlow if i die supposedly barlow did everything he was supposed to do he gave the books that he was supposed to give to the people that he was supposed to give it to lovecraft's friends and things and he took all of lovecraft's manuscripts and things that he had or most of them and gave them to the john hayes library at brown university right now in doing these things barlow didn't really communicate to people very well that lovecraft specifically asked him to do this and a lot of people got mad, like Clark Ashton Smith. They thought that he was sneaking in there and kind of pilfering all of his things,
0: just absconding with it.
1: Exactly, he wasn't. He was following to the letter what he was supposed to, what he was supposed to do. Now, I never really cared much for August or less writing.
0: Right, it's bad, but I always say, "Well, hey, he was responsible for getting Lovecraft in the print, and he started Arkham House, so we kind of owe right. him a debt of gratitude." We've said that on the show many
1: times. We have, we have said that. But it, in in March of thirty seven. Derelith was already had a plan he wanted to take lovecraft's stuff and publish it he felt that he was the guy that was supposed to be lovecraft's kind of executor because lovecraft wrote in a letter to him once late in 36 dereleth wanted to market one of his books and lovecraft wrote back rather wearily Joshi says as we're trying to float a volume of grandpa's weird tales someday naturally i shall have blessings rather than objections to offer but I wouldn't advise the expenditure of too much time and energy into the project. And that was it. That was all that was said.
0: That was his endorsement.
1: In Daryl's head, he goes, oh, I'm the guy that has to do this. You can take it as he had the gumption to go, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to publish Lovecraft's stuff with or without Barlow's consent because I got Lovecraft's himself's consent. Now, again, this isn't right. legal. This isn't binding in any way. However, he just did it. He What he wanted to do was get three volumes published of Lovecraft's work. It was called the outsiders and others three books. And he went to publishers and since Lovecraft died and there was a big outpouring of support when he died because he had a ton of fans. Yeah. So there was kind of a a Lovecraft fever going on after he had died. He went to publishers and says, I want to do this three volume thing. And they're like, well, three volumes. That's a bit much. How about maybe one? And he was like, no. No, no, no. It has to be these three volumes of all of his work, some of his poems and some of his letters. Mm. And that's why he started Arkham House was to get those three books in print. Joshi talks about this. And I have to agree where people say things like us when we say if it wasn't for Derelith, these things wouldn't be in print and we wouldn't have them. An argument could be made. That says if he wasn't so hardcore about doing this three volumes, maybe a bigger publisher would have immediately published one of Lovecraft's work and got it a lot more attention. Now, of course, I'm talking about a lot of ifs, ands, and buts. So who knows? But it is possible that if a bigger publisher quickly got Lovecraft out while Lovecraft Fever was going on, that he might have... (laughs) He might have kind of stepped out of that weird fiction nook that he was put in and sure. moved into bigger literary circles.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's entirely possible. I mean, derleth's printing, it was a small circulation. Yeah. An interesting thing in DeCamp's biography that he does say when he's taught, he's saying Lovecraft was kind of a failure because he didn't really practice his craft. He didn't try very hard to learn how to write in different styles or, you know, he just wasn't a very good writer is his argument that he, oh. he was lazy and he didn't he didn't do very much. But uh, he does say, which I found interesting, that if you are cool with reading at a more leisurely pace, that Lovecraft stories are going to be good for you because they've kind of got outmoded you know, ways of, of going about things. It's not that clear, concise kind of prose that people use now. But he does recommend that nobody read a lot of them all together at once. <laughs> he does. He says if you do that, the similarities, in, as with, in his defense, he says, as with any short story writer, if you read a lot of the work at once, you're going to see all of the completely repeated themes, devices, stylistic choices, and it's going to start to weary you. And you're probably going to have a worse impression of this writer than you would if you kind of spaced it out a little bit. <laughs> so that might be a question we want to ask ourselves in the next episode. Yes. Was it a good idea to spend three years reading all these stories back to back? Did it make us like him?
1: Less or more. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we'll talk about that next week. With Durland, now by him putting this in print at Arkham House, he sort of felt like he had the rights to do this. Now he didn't, the only person that has any rights was Annie Gamwell because all of Lovecraft stuff goes to her. She's the one that has, and she kind of was like, I don't know. Uh, And other people, other authors were kind of fighting about who can print what. And she said, I just wish his friends would get along and sort it out amongst themselves. She wasn't really bothered. Uh, So, but she dies in a few years. She dies in 41. In that time, it was Darylith who just kind of a hound about it and really aggressive and, threatened Mm -hmm. to sue people if they started publishing things and most people stepped back and said okay I'm not going to do it and for years everybody believed that Arkham House and and he had the rights to it and they didn't and since Gamwell passed away she had some cousins that still lived but if you don't renew a copyright the the next of kin don't renew the copyright then it goes into the public domain which legally it did. Now Derelith and Arkham House said that they had the rights to all that stuff. They never did. But this is something that was going on Until the 90s. I remember, do do you know the company Wizards of the Coast? They they do Dungeons and Dragons and things. Mm -hmm. Uh, They did like a a version of Call of Cthulhu with the rules, the Dungeons and Dragons rules. Wizards of the Coast also does Magic the Gathering, which is a huge game. Millions and millions of dollars. Now they're owned by Hasbro. uh, So it's a big company. When they were doing this, somebody decided to check into the copyright stuff. So this is in the 90s.
0: Because what wasn't there back when Dungeons and Dragons was published by... TSR or whoever the original publishers were, yes. they had put yeah. some mm-hmm. Lovecraft monsters in one of their manuals and had to take them out. Right, that had already happened. Exactly. A long time
1: ago. Yes, in the original first edition of Deities and Demigods book, there was the, the Cthulhu mythos was one of the sections. Right, you know, Nor- Norse mythos, Greek mythos, mm-hmm. and the Cthulhu mythos thrown in with all of them, and they had to take them out in the second printing because Arkham House came after yeah. them. Now, it, all that stuff makes me so angry now because. They, they had no right to do so. And another thing that Derelith was doing was when he was writing his stuff, he was sort of putting this kind of Christian twist on the mythos. Yeah. And this is a whole other aspect of it. And, and that by putting – like Cthulhu was sort of this cast-out god – and he was sort of this kind of Satan-like figure. right? And there was tying them all into elementals, like Cthulhu was the god of the ocean and Sithagawa was the god of the earth.
0: Completely misses the point of the whole thing.
1: Misses the point entirely. And even, like, there's some stuff where Clark Ashton Smith writes to him and tries to go, you know, this you're, this isn't what this is about. It's about how we don't understand these things. Yeah. And it, we're never going to understand them. You can't quantify them. That's what makes them creepy. And then Dareless going uh yeah yeah whatever whatever and then he even goes as far to say oh no Lovecraft wrote to me at some one point that no this is the way it's supposed to be
0: Mm.
1: like he would went on to like lie and use Lovecraft to support whatever crazy cockamamie things that he wanted to do yeah and I just after I was reading all this stuff I was so angry yeah
0: Well, I remember, I think I mentioned it on the show before, that um, when I was a kid, I wanted more Lovecraft books, and my mother bought me one, and it was a Durleth book, but it said H.P. Love It was completely misleading. Oh, yeah. It was fragments he'd taken or whatever and written some crappy stories, and I even knew it without... I had to flip back to the copyright page, and I realized they were all co-written with this guy, who sounded like like the coolest Mm -hmm. name I'd ever heard, August Durleth. Yeah,
1: that's that's a cool name. I was so disappointed. It's disappointing to know that Durleth took it and tried to make it his own thing, and in the coattails of lovecraft and he made money at it i mean arkham house is still around as a publishing mm-hmm. company and they've published lots of other great stuff yeah and you know we were talking about ray branbury who first got published yeah, yeah. in by, by arkham house and stuff so i mean they became a, a real company and you know i don't want to disparage the company at all i'm just talking about derelict specifically the choices that he made seemed really intense to me now after saying all those things he still did do these right, things he right. still put these books in print the fact of the matter is the proof is in the pudding he's the guy that did it he was the one that had the who knows maybe barlow who had all this stuff would have just kind of let it go or what you know maybe would have sat on it or wasn't the right guy for it and he found other interests i don't know i mean this is we're speculating on stuff that we'll never know but the truth is, Daryl made it happen, and he, he published these books. we still got to give him props for that.
0: Absolutely. The really odd thing about Lovecraft's posthumous career is that it, it took time to take off, really. I know that he always had fans, but there was definitely a long period of time from the 40s through up to the 70s where he was pretty regarded as just a weirdo. The literary critics definitely did not like anything. No. That, that he had written. It really only survived. I mean, it, it, it's, it's amazing to me that this stuff managed to continue to be passed down when there was such little regard for it. By the time you get to the 70s, I think, which is around really the what we've been drafting on for this whole show, where you had a lot of journals coming out. It starts working itself into rock music. We start seeing uh, games springing mm-hmm. up out of it. And a lot of people really starting to get it right and have a good understanding of his body of work. And uh, also Lovecraft rising in the esteem of other literary professionals. And then giant writers like Stephen King and Clive Barker calling him out. I mean, I really think he has that 70s, 80s, 90s to now renaissance. But it took so long to get there.
1: He was a writer's writer and writers loved him. And it just took a while for it to go from being popular in this horror writing click out into the mainstream. And it it slowly eked out. It was, I mean, again, I've said this before and I will say it again, that In 1981, uh, Chaosium released the Call of Cthulhu role playing game. And I think that more than anything has got Lovecraft in mainstream culture. Mm -hmm. Started off in geek culture, but the time, you know, the time we're in now, I mean, we've got multi million dollar Avengers movies, you know, about Iron Man and the Hulk. Yeah. I mean, if you would have told me that was going to happen, in 1985, I would have thought you were out of your mind. <laughs> exactly.
0: it's, it's pretty crazy. Even in the present moment, I think that, that we're really reaching the nexus of this because I think about the fact that Donovan Laux has HP Lovecraft.com with the most correct versions of Lovecraft stories to date, free and available for all to read and appreciate. Yeah. And, and, and when I think about the end of Lovecraft's life, how disappointed he was at the hack job that was done to at the Mountains of Madness and the Shadow of the Time. The way they they broke up all the paragraphs and removed entire sentiments and even altered sentences to become... Hilarious. But now you can read them as they were written, and uh, there's a scholastic appreciation and all of this great background knowledge that a couple of jokers like us can get on here and and just draft off of everybody else's appreciation and
1: scholarly work. A Life was published in in 97, I think. 96. It was first copyrighted in 96. There's been revisions made because there's still stuff being discovered. People find Lovecraft letters, they turn up every once in a while. Yeah. Because he was so prolific, they think only 10% of his stuff has been found. So that means 90% of it, well, most of it's probably destroyed, but still. Yeah, but you
0: know there's a box in an attic somewhere that's just got a bunch of great stuff in it.
1: I remember something popped up on eBay, and uh, this was maybe a year ago. It was a letter or postcard that was Lovecraft's, and somebody had just found it. What? This can't be real. And he scanned it and I think sent it to Joshi and said, yeah, I found this in my attic. Is it legitimate? Just was like, yeah, that's... That seems to be a real letter. Wow! Yeah, they're out there; they're floating around. And as these things happen, and I think the internet is really helps with mm-hmm. this kind of collective knowledge that everybody is contributing to, and more and more is being understood about Lovecraft and his work.
0: Yeah, and the work is uh, is still ongoing. However, for you and I, the work is done.
1: Well, this part
0: of the work is done. <laughs> <laughs> right. Thanks again to uh, The Human Aftertaste for allowing us to use music. Please go check our show notes so you can link out and, and, and buy that music good stuff it's good and creepy Yep. please 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 tune in next week we want to selfishly talk about uh, what this has been like for us we want to talk about what it's been like getting to meet everybody who's listened to the show and correspond with us some of the experiences you had and then we we want to talk about what we're planning on doing next and hopefully we can get you all on board with that idea as well so yep. have a listen next week i am chad pfeiffer
1: i'm chris lackey and you've been listening to the hp lovecraft literary podcast
0: at hppodcraft.com
1: hppodcraft.com